Psalm 66. This is a song of celebration. It's a song of praise. It's a song in response to God's answered prayer. And that specific answered prayer, I believe, comes out of Psalm 64. In verse 7, where we see David had been praying for the Lord to wipe out his enemies. And we saw in verse 7 of Psalm 64, But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. And so because of the victory that the Lord had brought, David is responding and answered this answered prayer where the Lord has answered his prayer, has taken out his enemies. And we continue to see his praise going for the next several psalms. And so it is the response to God's answered prayer, which is the specific context in which we find this psalm. And you'll notice a couple of things. He begins by stating uh, the singing, calling the congregation to shout, to sing. Then he calls the congregation to see what God has done. And as a result of what God has done, he says, calls the congregation to bless the Lord. And then he says how he himself will respond to the Lord's answered prayer. And finally, he says, hear what the Lord has done. And so you see this, these, these different emphasis of see what the Lord has done, bless what the Lord has done, hear what the Lord has done. And that's how these verses break down roughly. And so let us hear the psalm, and then we'll further break down this structure. So beginning in verse 1, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. 
This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. In the first four verses, you see the call for him to sing to the Lord or to shout of the Lord. And you see the emergence of the attribute of God's power as the reason for the shouting out. And I want to... I wanna, situate the rest of the psalm as a response to God's power. And so we think of how we respond to God because of his attributes. These first four verses are singing of a response to God because he is omnipotent. And then we see in verses 5 through 7, the call is to see God, how his power, how his omnipotence was manifested in his power over nature. And then verses 8 through 12, where the people are called to bless the Lord, it is because His power is manifested in the preservation of His people. And then you see the psalmist himself will worship in response to the omnipotence of God. And then verses 16 through 20, he calls the people to hear these words because he is going to share the news of God's omnipotent power. And so that is the, how these verses break down and how we will look as a response to God's answered prayer because God is all-powerful. And so he begins by saying, Shout to for joy to God all the earth. And so this is a call for all people. It's an invitation for the, for the whole world to come and proclaim and sing God's name. This would be very interesting for an Israelite to say and invite the whole entire world because they were very nation-centric. This is an outlook to the future of when Gentiles will be included in the chorus of worshipers. In fact, the whole entire psalm is looking forward to what God will do when all of the earth will sing praises for our God. That's what we witness today. In many ways, this psalm can call us to worship every time we gather, and it can be calling of the entire world and all nations to be gathering to worship God. So sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Spurgeon says this, and I I want you to think about this. When it says glory, he says it is our glory to be able to give God glory. And all our true glory should be ascribed unto God, for it is His glory. You know, we struggle with whether we do things for God's glory or not, but notice what Spurgeon is saying in this call here to sing the glory of His name, to give Him glorious praise, to ascribe to God glory is actually to give Him what He is due and the only way in which we will experience any true glory. When we do things for our own glory, actually we take away from any glory that we might have because it's not ours anyways. And so, how is it that when we gather to sing to the Lord, to sing the glory of His name, to give Him glorious praise? Think about this for a second. Put yourself in this situation. You're driving in your car by yourself, and you have your radio or whatever you, however you listen to music, up loud. 
and it's not, say, a hymn, what are you doing? No one's there. If you're like me, you're singing at the top of your lungs with your favorite music. Isn't it interesting how we can do that? We can sing our favorite secular music at the top of our lungs, but then when we come into the assembly of the saints, where it's a safe place, where we're actually called to worship, and Scripture commands us to sing hymns, not not necessarily to God, but actually sing and greet one another with psalms and hymns. We're supposed to do that to one another. We're supposed to be, when we gather to sing, the Scriptures actually call us to sing to one another. So I can sing to the top of my lungs to my favorite music. But when you come inside the assembly of the saints, it's how firm a foundation the saints of the Lord. Hoping no one hears our voice. Look what God's word says. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. What a blessed opportunity we have every time we gather to shout to the Lord with our voices. In key, off key, we shout to the Lord. And that is our act of worship to Him. Notice what it says of why we do this. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. That word awesome, it oftentimes is a word that elicits fear. Meaning, when we think of the awesomeness of God and the awesomeness of God's work, it is a there's a weight to it. There's a heaviness to it. It's it's to cause us to stop and ponder. So you think about the songs that we sing. You think about the words that come out of our mouth that we're singing them. Those songs have a didactic purpose. And what didactic purpose means is that they're to teach us about the awesomeness of God's works. You know, I don't know about you, but I can remember singing hymns from the time I was very young and can sing them almost from memory. So many hymns that have become the foundation of my faith that are telling of the awesome deeds of God. When we read the Psalms, we hear of the awesome deeds of God. And so when we sing, think about that word awesome and how it is actually to cause us to a reverential meditation upon God. And how awesome, how powerful are they? You'll notice what it says, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Some translations say something to the effect that your enemies will submit to you. That come cringing is the idea of submission. So this is a future outlook is that there is coming a day whether they're willing or not willing, where everyone will submit themselves to the king. There's coming a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. That's coming whether one is willing to admit that or not. 
But here's our admonition, here's the exhortation from, for us right now. If that day is coming where all knees will come and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will submit to him, why would we not willingly submit to him now in all things? Why would we not willingly submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as King and Lord of our lives right now? Why is it that we resist the Lord so often? We know that there's coming a day where we will be in complete submission to him. Why would we resist it even now? All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Again, this is, this is a picture of the future Gentile inclusion. You know, it's, it's very interesting. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, it says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. One thing is when you read the book of Revelation, and a lot of, a lot of times this is missed, John sometimes hears something, and it describes what he hears, and then it says right after that, he sees something. And actually, you have to note that if you want to properly interpret the book of Revelation, because what he hears is not always matching what he sees, but what he sees is actually what he heard. What did he see? He says after this in verse 9, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture of all the world, of all the earth, gathering to praise our great King. If that's our future, why would we not worship now? I don't know. Obviously, that is a reality as well, because all the world has gathered to worship the Lord even now. Praise is the greatest sacrifice we can give. Remember that idea of sing to his glory, sing glorious praise, sing of his power. Now the psalmist is going to show how this power has been manifested in nature. And so he invites us, come and see what God has done. And I, I, I love this, is, is that we're going to actually be given an, an example so he gives a general statement. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Some, some translations say he is terrible in his deeds towards the children of man. And it can be translated either terrible or awesome. I think awesome is actually a better translation because it speaks of the positive response, uh, those positive things that God has done for the children of Adam. And so this is an invitation for us to consider 
and to contemplate what God has done. He's going to give the example of the Exodus. When David writes this psalm, no one was alive to go and see the Exodus. They were all dead, but here's what we must be recognized, is God's word is sufficient for us to see the powerful, awesome working of God over nature. God's word is all we need to tell us that God dried up the land and the Israelites walked on dry land into escaping Egypt. And so we're invited to come and see this, which tells us that we need daily reminders of this to contemplate God's power, how God has preserved His people, how God has worked for His people. We need daily reminders of this because we're invited to come and see what God has done. We gather every Sunday and we're invited to come and see what God has done. We, we need this constant reminder daily and because our hearts are so prone to wander... We actually need it every hour, don't we? How is it that we come and see? Well, very simply, this psalmist tells us it's by looking in God's Word. Because he gives this example, verse 6, He turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him, who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. They couldn't actually go back and see that. You and I can't go back and see that, but we're invited to go back and contemplate that where we see what God has done in the past. So where do we need to have our heads? Where do we need to have our hearts? Where do we need to have our minds constantly fixed upon God's Word where we can come and see His mighty, awesome deeds towards man? And I want you to notice this and these awesome deeds. We see both rescue and destruction in the example. Don't miss that point. Because you see the children of Israel rescued, but how were they rescued? They were rescued by destroying Pharaoh's army. They were rescued through a supernatural means that God opens the waterways, the Egyptians fall into, walk into it, and the water then goes and covers them up. God rescues them through these means. There was a lot of soldiers not coming home to their families that night. There was judgment in rescue. That's part of the contemplation. That's actually part of the praise that God is a just God that vindicates his people that rescues his people and pours out his judgment on others. It's amazing. You see this, and you could be very centric on the Israelites, but it doesn't stop there. It says, There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch, on the nations. 
Calvin makes this fascinating point where he says, quote, Judea is the proper seat of his kingdom, but providence always extended to the world at large, end quote. What's Calvin saying? Calvin's saying simply what this verse is saying is that his rule is over all nations. There's not a nation that's not under his rule. So while he shows his his special care and mercy to his people that are called by his name, he's actually over all nations, controlling all nations, and his providence extends to them. There's not a square inch of creation that's not under his daily providence. So he says this then, as a result of this, those nations are presumed to be the rebellious. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And I think this is a a simple call for us to say to those that are rebellious, those that are of those outside of Christ's church, We must warn them of the coming destruction. We must warn them not to exalt themselves because they will be brought low. What did it start off by saying? Is that your enemies come cringing to you. You know, that needs to be the message that we need to proclaim. Is that there is a God and He will judge you unless you come to Him by faith. Your pride, your arrogance of the time is going to be squashed. We are to have no parts with workers of iniquity. We're to not take part with any wickedness. And wickedness has exalted itself. And we need to warn them that there's a coming destruction. You know, how will that look for us? Well, ask Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. How did it look when he warned of the coming destruction? How did his family respond? How did Christiana respond to him? How did his children respond? They said, you're mad. That's our time that we live in now. But let not the rebellious exalt themselves. We have the message and we need to proclaim it. He goes on to say and proclaim and bless God for his power manifested in preservation. He calls again, bless our God, O people. So he's calling to the people, let the sound of his praise be heard. Why? Well, his power is manifested in how he preserves his people. Who has kept our soul among the living has not let our feet slip. That's amazing because it shows, it demonstrates that they were in danger and thought that they might actually slip. This is a promise that you see throughout Scripture is that God will not let His people's feet slip. In Psalm 121, verse 3, He will not let your foot be moved. Why? Because He who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So what's the promise in which we're called to bless the Lord is that in his uh, omnipotence, he holds us so that we will not fall even when we are facing turmoil, even when it seems like our world is falling in around us. He is the one that is powerful over all things. He will not make that promise to the wicked. In fact, the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil picked up on this fact. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Jonathan Edwards said, that is God dangling the wicked just as with a spider web over the pits of hell. And at any moment, they could slip. That's actually a promise of destruction for the wicked. But the promise for those in Christ is this. He will not let your foot slip. Why? Because he who has you neither sleeps nor slumbers but constantly keeps his eye upon you. But that doesn't mean you won't face turmoil. That doesn't mean you won't feel like you're going to slip. It doesn't mean that you, won't, you don't feel like things are horrible around you. And what we have to recognize is that when that is the case for us, it's actually God doing something in our lives. Notice verse 10, and it says this to us. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. That is speaking of God purifying us. How does God purify us? Now, God could just simply purify us. But he doesn't do it that way. God purifies us through trials through suffering, and through the difficulties of life. In fact, we see that. The psalmist even gives that example. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. He didn't let their feet slip, even though he was taking them through those things. Notice what it says. You have tested us. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on us. You let men ride over our backs. Now, the psalmist isn't accusing God of injustice. Far from it. He says, God, you did these things. You let our enemies overrun us. You let us experience horrible things. But actually... You didn't let our feet slip. You brought us to a place of abundance. Now remember, what is the whole purpose of this psalm? It's a call to do what? Bless God. Going through suffering? Bless God. Going through trials? Bless God. Whatever we're facing? Bless God. Your Job, bless God. 
whole world comes crashing down. Bless God. God's actually doing something in that. We see this in the New Testament, so clearly written. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Remember that, what he said? You've brought us into abundance. James says the same thing, you lack nothing. When we face these trials, it's God in His providence bringing us to a place of genuineness. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our trials are doing something. We're not to rejoice at the trials because often our times our trials come as a result of someone else's sin. Sometimes they come as a result of our sin. What we are to bless the Lord is for His providence that He knows what He's doing in our lives, that He will not withhold any good thing for those who He loves. And Paul says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When you go through trials and you go through suffering, He doesn't let your feet slip and He actually brings you to an abundance. It's just like, how do we, how do we define that abundance? Well, perseverance, hope. I always think of what Paul writes that's been a comfort for me, and I'm sure many that have gone through suffering. In fact, this is one verse that I take with me to the hospital often. I, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We go through suffering and we don't enjoy the suffering and we're not called to enjoy the suffering. Suffering is suffering. We're not stoics. But we also recognize that the Lord will not let our feet slip and that He's working in abundance for us in that. God took them through the fire and preserved them. And you know what happens? In many ways, we join the experience of our forefathers in their faith. If Abraham went through trials, if Jeremiah, who so boldly preached, experienced trials, if Jesus experienced trials, if Paul experienced trials, if Peter experienced of trials, who are we to think that we'll escape them? We actually begin to join the family of faith. 
in their experiences, and we join in the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ in that. And so David says that because of these things, because of what the Lord has done in answering his prayers and in keeping him, bringing him to an abundance, he's going to worship. And you see that in verses 13 through 15. Where he says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. What is he doing? He's, he's worshiping God in response to God answering his prayers. David had gone through the ringer. And what does he do when he comes out of it? He blesses God for his experience of going through the ringer. And says, now I'm going to go worship because I can. I'm back in Jerusalem. Why does he worship? Because he was set free and liberated to do so. What is the greatest reason why we can gather for worship is because we have been liberated and set free to worship. Because now we may worship in purity as Jesus, because of Jesus, our great high priest, we may actually come into the presence of God. We're called to worship because we have been set free. He finally says and calls for us to hear He says, come and hear all who fear God. So now he's specifically speaking to God-fearers, those who know the Lord. And what does he say he's going to do? And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I will tell what God has done for me. This is him, David, calling people to hear the testimony of what God's power is. He said, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Here's the point for us, is if we have experienced rescuing, it, it is our job, it's our commission, it's the command for us to go and share that we have been delivered. You know, think about it this way. If you escape something, just think of like a, a car accident, and you have a close call, and you're physically rescued, what's the first thing you do? You go find someone to tell them the story of how you just almost died. We were even so excited, we might even over-exaggerate it. I was an inch away from the train, or whatever it may be. That's the first thing we do. We can't wait to go and tell someone of how we just narrowly escaped. You know, when we come to Christ, we don't narrowly escape. We are fully rescued. We just don't make the cut. Christ fully gives us his righteousness and takes our sin from us. This is not a a temporal escape. It's actually that we have been given eternal life. That though we die, yet shall we what? Live. And 
how often our lips are, are tight on that. That's a convicting thing to think about. You think of what your passions are and how we like to talk about them. I'm speaking to myself. I can talk all day long about a lot of subjects. But how hard is it for us to share of the glory of Christ and the good news of salvation that he brings and how we've been rescued? How he didn't let our feet slip, but actually set our feet on dry ground. He goes on to say, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, he goes on to say the Lord did listen. The Lord did answer his prayer. This is a response to the Lord answering his prayer to take out his enemies. But I want you to notice what that says and hang on that for a moment. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know, in John chapter 9, this doctrine of God not listening to prayers comes out. John chapter 9, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That was the blind man that had been received his sight. In one sense, God only hears the prayers of sinners. But notice what it says. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart. Let me just, I guess, ask this question. Are we grieved by our sins and confess them to the Lord? Or is prayer just a means to, or habit, that excuses us and says, I know God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'll go ahead and do this. Maybe we don't actually say those words, but that's our mentality. I think that's what it's addressing. It's certainly addressing the hypocrite, the one that does not know the Lord. The Lord does not listen to their prayers. But do we pray for help to the Lord with the intention of actually never altering our behavior. Peter picks up on that, doesn't he? When he says that our prayers are hindered by how we treat our wives. Let that sink in. You ever had someone ask for prayer while they're actively sinning? I've had that many times where people have wanted prayer for them in their sinful situation that they have no intention of changing. Look, God's not going to hear that. My prayer is actually that God would smack you and you would wake up. People don't want to hear that. But what they need to know is that God does not hear that prayer for them to do wickedness. But David says this, but truly God has listened. He has attended to my voice, to the voice of my prayer. Why? Because David's heart was repentant 
and he prayed by faith to the Lord that the Lord would answer his prayers. And so he says, Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. And that's a promise to us, too, that the Lord will not remove his steadfast love from us. The Lord will not let our feet slip. We see in the psalm, we see in the scriptures, the Lord's power manifested over nature in the preservation of his people. We see God's power manifested in the preservation of his people through turmoil. And we see the call to share the news of his power. Now, David was writing this in many ways because of a temporal salvation that he receives. But I want us to see this through another lens, and that is this, is David's praise was not just because he did not fall to the hands of an enemy. Remember, David was promised something. David was promised that his son would rule from an eternal throne. David's praise of God was that God was preserving him to bring about the anointed one, the Messiah. So when we read of these temporal salvations and deliverances that David received, we can't just merely think of it in terms of a temporal, momentary deliverance, but rather we must look at it through the lens of Christ. Why was David delivered? For the sake of his son. For the sending of his son. That salvation would be accomplished. And so friends, we actually find ourselves in this psalm right along with David. That if you are in Christ, you have been rescued. And God has answered that prayer. And he will not let your foot slip, because he neither sleeps nor slumbers, but his eye is always upon his people. And that is our promise, too. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us and merciful to us that you will not allow our feet to slip, but you actually bring us into a well-watered land with an abundance You have blessed us so greatly. May we bless your name. And may we reflect upon your mighty works that you have done and that you have shown. May we reflect upon these things as we read your word and may we carry them in our hearts always with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.